On April the 15th, 1912, 1,517 people lost their lives as the RMS Titanic sank during its maiden voyage in the North Atlantic off the coast of Newfoundland, about 400 miles. What made this an, um, a noteworthy story, of course, is that the Titanic was thought to be an unsinkable ship. It was thought to be unsinkable because the, the engineers who had designed it had made the hull into a multiple compartment hull so that if one hull was breached, they had a, a switch that could be thrown in the bridge and a watertight door would shut and seal off that portion, that compartment of the hull, from the rest. It would take at least a breach of five compartments before the Titanic was in danger of sinking. Therefore, it was, for all practical purposes, an unsinkable ship. Of course, you know the rest of the story, don't you? Uh, on April the 14th, just before midnight, the RMS Titanic struck a, um, uh, an iceberg and left a gash in the starboard side of, its, of the ship over 300 feet long, breaching five internal compartments inside the hull. Exactly the number it would take to sink the ship. Well, here's the thing that really gets me about this. How can you be in a ship and not see a huge iceberg floating in front of you? I mean, it's like the size of a mountain, and you don't see it. I, you know, I don't know about you, but I can pick an onion out of a salad. You know, I'm, I, I hate onions. I, I know some people love them, but, but not me. And so I see one, and I'm, but you miss a, a chunk of ice the size of Rhode Island. Well, you know, of course, the story, don't you? They were going way too fast in the dark. They were so sure, they were so sure that, that the ship was unsinkable that they presumed upon the strength of the ship and rammed right into an iceberg. The captain was sure the ship wouldn't sink. And he was, if you'll pardon the pun, dead wrong about that, wasn't he? Um, it, an unsinkable ship. An unsinkable ship, well, of course you're going to push the envelope in an unsinkable ship. There's no, no reason why you wouldn't. You want to go faster. You want to get there in record speed. It, this was, they were going to get to, to New York from, from, uh, from the UK in, in, what, five or six days, which was like supersonic speed, right? And they were going to get there. But the fact that they had lifeboats on board at all strikes me as a little bit odd. They only had enough for about a thousand people, so only half the ship's passengers would have had any chance of surviving. But of course, you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey said, and they didn't even fill those up. Only 700 people, 706 people actually, survived. They had an unsinkable ship and no rescue plan, no contingency plan if things went wrong. And of course, they went very wrong. In the Old Testament reading, just that Catherine read just a moment ago, it comes from the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. He lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. This was during a time when um, shortly after, well, shortly in, in biblical terms, a uh, hundred years or so after the nation had divided between the north and the south. You had Israel to the north with ten tribes and Judah to the south with roughly only one. The tribe of Benjamin was included but so small that it wasn't even counted as a full tribe. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. The northern kingdom had left the, the, the southern kingdom in, in quite haste and taken with it, as you can see, most of the land and most of the people. But Judah had hope. It was the tribe of David, the tribe of promise. 
God had promised Judah that, that there would be, a, or promised David rather, that there would always be a son of his that would sit upon the throne in Jerusalem. And so Micah lives in this divided neighborhood. But it's also a tough neighborhood. You watch the news, you know that it's a tough neighborhood today, don't you? It's not newsworthy. It's been a tough neighborhood for thousands of years. And during the time of Micah, you had Egypt to the south that was a a powerful nation. You had Assyria way up to the north that was a superpower. And they weren't a very nice superpower either. Uh, They were ruled by a a king whose name was Tiglath-Pileser III. I think that'd be a great name for a dog, don't you? Tiglath-Pileser III. Anyway, you had this this king up in the north (laughs) that was named Tiglath-Pileser III, and he was brutal. He was ruthless. He would go into foreign countries. He would take um, you know, his, uh, his army with him. He would demolish the city. And then he would find the leaders of the country. And he would lead them out into the center of the streets. And he would take these giant hooks and he would stick them all the way through the arms of the leaders. And then he would have his generals drag the generals of the defeated army through the city streets. And then he would find the king. And he himself, Tiglath-Pileser III, would go up and take this king and he would stick a hook right through his nose. And he would drag him through the city streets as if to say to everybody, don't mess with us. We are a tough nation. We can handle our own. And everybody knew it. And so the one thing that nations would try to do was build alliances. And so Israel, now divided from Judah, Israel and Syria made alliance against Assyria. But Judah decided they would just pay Assyria the money that they required. They were kind of like the ancient Near Eastern mafia. You pay us money and we won't beat you up. Um, It's kind of like Scott Hall, my friend in the the third grade. He was kind of like that too. You know, give me your lunch money. Uh, But I digress. Assyria would be, they would be the kind of uh, a nation that would would charge money for not not, uh, destroying you. And so Judah pays the money. Israel and Syria do not. And guess what happens to Israel? They're destroyed. They're destroyed. They're taken into exile. In fact, they're no longer, they no longer exist on the face of the earth to this day. Assyria was that powerful of an influence. But Judah, a small tribe to the south, remains. But Micah has a case against Judah. Micah has a case against them and says, you know what, just because you weren't destroyed doesn't mean that things are all peachy keen. In fact, they're quite not that way. The nation of Judah has suffered economic depravity. Because of that, the rich have taken quite abuse of the poor. They have used it as an excuse to exploit them even more. Clergy wanted to get paid, so they told the rich, you know what, God doesn't have a problem with that. Guess what, turns out God actually does have a problem with that, and he tells them so. So the the rich are doing well, the the clergy seem to be doing well, the priests and the prophets, but the people are exploited, and most of the people are poor. The problem is, is even the poor don't turn to God. Instead, what they turn to is sorcery and idolatry. Listen to Micah's uh, complaints in chapter 3. The heads of, of government give judgment for a bribe, the priests teach for a price, and the prophets practice divination for money. Later on, the people worship idols and practice sorcery. They do all this in defiance of God. In fact, they say, they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in our midst? It's like they thought they were an unsinkable ship. 
able to do whatever they wanted with, with impunity. But guess what Micah says later on in chapter 3? Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. You think that you're going to get away with this, Micah says? Not so fast. <laughs> Words of Lee Corso. Not so fast, my friend. It's not going to be like that. Destruction, punishment is coming upon you. And so Micah, and just like him, Isaiah, have the same story to tell. But here's the strange thing. Right in the midst of all this gloom, doom, and destruction, right tucked in between Jerusalem's going to be plowed like a field and I'm coming after you, um, two tickets to paradise and it's a Babylonian paradise, not so fun. Okay, just between that, that's kind of a loose paraphrase, you understand. Just between that, you get this. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they struck the judge of Israel in the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be named among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth one for me who is ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. There's coming someone to lead Israel. He's coming from Bethlehem Ephratah. This little, little village in the middle of nowhere too obscure to be known by anyone. And, and, and the one who's coming is going to be a shepherd who will shepherd God's flock. This is a kingly image. The, 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 this, this one who's coming from Bethlehem will be like a king who will lead Israel into safety. He will show them what goodness and integrity are about. He will bring them peace through his strength. He will protect them and he will show them how to live as the people of God in the world. I think what Micah says about this coming king, really important. The first one is, is that he's going to be Israel's, he's going to be, um, Israel's king, God's servant. In chapter two, 5, verse 2, from you shall come forth one for me. This is, the, this is God speaking. One's going to come forth for me. And he will, he will serve the Lord his God later on in verse 4. He's going to be the servant of the Lord, so says Micah. But he's also going to be the ancient of days. How can it be that this one coming from Bethlehem, Micah says, is going to be a man, a servant of God, and yet the Ancient of Days, a code word for God Himself? How could it be that one could be a man and God? People must have read Micah's prophecy and said, this is bizarre. How could this ever happen? How could this ever be? And yet this is exactly what happens. The key, though, is that he's going to come from Bethlehem. He will hail from Bethlehem, the last place you would ever look for a king. In fact, you know the story of the, the men from the east who come looking for him, the Magi, right? They don't go to Bethlehem, do they? They go to the city of the king. They go to Jerusalem. But he's not going to come from Jerusalem, and he's not going to come from Shiloh, and he's not going to come from Bethel or Dan. He's going to come from little, obscure Bethlehem. And as Advent winds down this year, I wonder where do you look for God? Maybe the star in the sky. This galactic harbinger of God's power and might. Oh, that God can control the stars of the sky and the galaxy. Maybe we listen for God in the voice of an angel. You know, this kind of spiritual being who can transcend the physical, material, and the ancient, the, uh, the spiritual. Maybe we look for something like that. Or perhaps 
Perhaps we look for God to show up in a backwater town in the southern part of Judah. We look for, we look for God to show up in, a, in an obscure place. Could it be? Could it be that maybe we've forgotten that the Messiah shows up where we least expect Him to? When I was a boy, about four or five, and I remember it well, like it was yesterday, um, I must have been up to an unusual amount of mischief with my brother. Because my mother called next door to the neighbor and said, these boys are being awful, do you think you could help me out? I need a new paddle. You see, my mother believed that, um, that the best way to raise a child in the way that he should go was to um, firmly apply the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge. I've said that before. Yeah. This was my mother's, um, this was her, her, her idea. And this day, she thought we needed a university-style education. And so she called our neighbor, and, um, and he went out. My brother and I went to the back door, and we watched. He went out to the garage, and we heard the roar of a saw. And we were scared. And then we heard the zing of a drill. This turkey was going to drill holes in that paddle so that it would go through the air faster. And I don't know what you would have done. But we decided we'd better make ourselves scarce. And so we took off and ran to hide. And we saw this chair in our living room that was sitting catty corner up against the wall. And we slid it out, got in behind it, pulled it back into place, slipped our legs under it, just two little boys. And we leaned back and we were quiet as church mice. And you know what happens to little boys when they sit still and they're quiet finally? They fall asleep. And we did. We fell fast asleep. And my mother searched the entire neighborhood. She had every neighbor out in the neighborhood looking for us too. They were desperate and panicked and searched for over an hour for us. When somebody pulled the chair back as they just started moving things around and found two little boys asleep behind the chair. Oh, my mother was so delighted, so, so relieved that she threw her arms around us crying and said, you never ever do that again and completely forgot about paddling us. Sometimes you find what you're looking for the most in the place you least expect to find it. Like little Bethlehem Ephrata. Amen.